All right, we are in the final week of James. I hope you guys enjoyed the book of James. It's the final week. I'm really sad because I love James, um, but we're going to read that together. So please open up your Bibles to James chapter 5. It's that last section, verse 13 to 20. James chapter 5, verse 13 to 20. I'll read this for us, and then Pastor Paul will come and uh, preach this passage to us. James chapter 5, verse 13. Uh, this is the ESV version. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. Hello. Uh, good to see you again. Um, Especially those who are new or you've left Kingsway for a bit or left church for a bit and you found yourself back here, we're especially happy to see you. I'm just going to make eye contact with anyone. Okay. Um, as Peter said, this is our last week of James, and I hope you enjoyed the series. Right? I don't know about you. Uh, as Peter said, same with me. James is one of my favorite books of the Bible. Right? It's up there, kind of under Philippians, right? right at, or Philippians, right at the top. But, you know, James is, is I, I love it. I've always loved it. And I think it's because it's so simple. I don't know if you felt that. It's, it's super practical, uh, down to earth, not very theological, right? not very kind of confusing parts. Um, and so today we're going to end this series. And today's talk, uh, sermon is called Christians Need Prayer. Uh, we've been 13 weeks through James. This is the last week. Now, James has been very simple, right? Practical, down to earth, not very theological until today. Right? Today is kind of hard. Right. Today's complicated. Uh, one commentator I read says this. He says that this last section of James is well acknowledged as being one of the hardest to understand in the whole letter and perhaps even the whole New Testament. Right? It's known to be one of the hardest to understand, not only in the book of James, but perhaps even in the whole New Testament. And this uh, commentator, he tells a story when he was preaching through the book of James uh, after, I guess, one of the sermons, one of his uh, members came up to him with a concerned look on his face. And the member said, are we going to look at the dodgy bit at the end? Right? And he was talking about these, these passages, right, these verses. Now, these passages have been applied by different groups uh, in different kinds of ways. For example, uh, right now, the Roman Catholic Church, from this passage, uh, get their sacrament of extreme unction. Right? That's what they call it. It's a sacrament where they will go to a person on their deathbed and they will pray for them and they will anoint them with oil in the hopes that uh, through that time and the time of confession, that person will be saved. 
right? That any remnant of sin would be erased from that person's life. It's like the last thing to, I guess, get them saved, right? And that's what the Catholic Church are doing based off this passage. And that's not something we do because we wouldn't kind of land in the same place. Also, even today, some modern-day healers would come to this passage and they will guarantee that if you come under the right circumstances, you will be healed. And they'll promise that. Right? And namely, the, what it hinges on, the right circumstance, is that you have enough faith. Right? From this passage, you'll get stuff like that. And from this passage, Christians around the world today, from a broad background, would go to people in the hospital who are sick, pray for them, and they'll take little bottles of oil, and they'll anoint those people out of obedience to this passage. Right, so here we are, James. Right, what, what's going on, right? What does this mean? And I'm going to give you a heads up. I'm going to go a totally, completely different direction from everything that I just shared. Right? But before I go to that, here's something that we can all agree on. Prayer is something every Christian needs to do. Right? Oh, let's go back. James says this, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Right, James kind of goes to two extremes when he begins, right? He's got a group here suffering. You've got a group here cheerful. And they're both kind of in the extreme opposite ends. And he tells each of those categories of people, turn to God, right? You're suffering, pray. Turn to God and pray. And if you're cheerful, turn to God and pray, I guess, in melody, right, in song. But no matter where you are, we should turn to God in this process of prayer and praise. And we've got passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, pray without ceasing. Ephesians 6, we are to be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Right, Christians, we all agree on this. No matter where you land on this passage, we all need to pray. Right? Do we agree with that? We all need to pray. Prayer is not something that some of us do some of the time. Oh, there's like a fly. It's like a, a fly of Satan trying to attack me. Prayer is not something we do some of the time. Prayer is something all of us should do all the time in all circumstances, right? I just want to make sure we, we get that, right? We understand that. Now, I talked about prayer right at the start of this year. We talked about, I did a series called Fan the Flame, and I gave this analogy of when you want to start a fire, you need these things, right? I said you need wood, right? That's the fuel. You need oxygen, that's the air, and you need some sort of covering to protect it from the wind and the elements, and then you need that spark, right, to make that alight. And for that flame to keep going, you need to keep feeding it wood, you need to keep feeding it oxygen, and you need to keep covering it, right, with some sort of protection. And I said in the Christian's life, for us to be passionate and to be on fire for God, we need those three elements. Right? We need the word, which is the wood. We need prayer, which is the air, right? So the word is the, like it's made of paper. As we digest that, it's like the, the fuel to our fire. Prayer, as we exhale, right, that's like the oxygen into the fire, and we need community, right? We need the people around us to cover us and to have our back, right, to keep us accountable and to exhort us. And what we're going to find in this passage is James going to take prayer and community, and we're going to see how they, those two work together, right? So we started off now here talking about you. You should pray or praise wherever you are, but now in community, we should pray as well. And see, these are my three points today. I want to talk about three groups of Christians in this place of community that need prayer. Right? How does prayer and community come together? There's three groups of people who need prayer. And so number one, those at the end of the faith. 
Now, this is the tricky part. Okay, this is the confusing part. I want to spend most of my time here on this point. And it's going to get a little bit into the weeds. We're going to pull out some Greek here. Okay, so it's going to be fun. Okay, well, it's fun for me. Okay, we'll see. Okay, let me read verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Now, on face value, when you read that, the way that the ESV has translated it, and to be honest, most English translations will say it in a similar way, when you hear that or read that, it seems obvious what he's talking about. There's a sick person, physically sick. They call the elders, the leaders of the church, right? And the elders are going to come. They're going to pray for you. They're going to get some oil. They're going to anoint you, and you're going to be healed. Right? That's what it seems to say. And if you've committed sin, right, somehow sin's got something to do with sickness here, sin, then you're going to be forgiven of your sin as well. Right? That's the majority view. And I'm going to just say that very clearly. Most people would agree with that. But there is a problem, like for me, even as I read that, and I don't know if you feel that, it doesn't really fit with the way the book of James has been going. Broadly speaking, James is a very practical book. There is no real trace of anything supernatural. He's been, um, you know, read your word and do it. He's been tame your tongue, plan in pencil, um, you know, apply what you know. Uh, don't just, you know, bless someone. You should practically serve them. Don't show favoritism. Right? All of these things are very practical and down to earth. And it kind of feels weird that as James ends, that he will then kind of change things and, and go all supernatural on us, right? And, and there are parts of the Bible that are supernatural. I'm just saying in the book of James, it doesn't really seem to fit. And when we come to the immediate context of where we've been, it doesn't seem to flow either. James has been talking about, if you remember a couple of sermons ago, about how the rich are persecuting and being unjust to the, the, poor, the Christians who are poor. And these Christians are starving, and they're in poverty, and they're suffering. Right? That's the general context of where James is. And as I go on, I'm going to point out, as we follow the passage, this idea of healing doesn't seem to fit the rest of what James is going to say. So this is what I'm going to propose, and I'll explain it as I go along. What I'm going to propose is that James isn't talking about physical sickness. He's talking about spiritual sickness. A spiritual weariness and weakness. The Christian who's just hanging by a, a thread onto their faith, about to give up. Right there at the end of their faith. You're like, where'd you come up with that? Verse 14. That word sick. Now when you read it, you're like, sick. That means sick. That word sick is from a Greek word, right? astheneo. Astheneo has a broad range of application if you look through the Bible. Literally, this word means not sick, it means weak. That's the main translation of that word. And so you can be weak physically, that's sick. But you can be weak mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. If you go to passages like Romans chapter 5, that's exactly what it says. While we were still astheneo, weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now here, Paul's not saying while we were physically sick, Jesus died for us. Paul's talking about a spiritual state we were in. Spiritually, 
weak, spiritually ungodly. And in that spiritual state, Christ still died for us, though we were ungodly. Right? Do you see how that word means a spiritual state? So I just want to say that word, astheneo, means weak, and it could mean a bunch of stuff, not necessarily physical sickness. On top of that, we have another word, sick, in verse 15. Now, that's actually a different Greek word, right? That's kamnonta. Now, that Greek word means weary. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean sick. It means weary. And the only time we see this word come up again in the Bible is in Hebrews chapter 12. And here, it means spiritual weariness. Not physical, spiritual weariness. The author of Hebrews says, Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And what the author is saying is, look, I know life is tough. It's a struggle. Holiness is hard. Maybe you're being persecuted. It's hard to live for God and not the world. But don't give up. Don't grow weary, not physical, but like this emotional or spiritual weariness where you will give up on your faith. Don't give up. Look at Christ. He struggled and he suffered and he was persecuted, but he endured. And similarly, in your fight for holiness, don't give up. Right? This word weary is a spiritual weariness. And so, that's my argument. This is a spiritually weak and weary state. Not physically, but the Christian who's at the end of their faith, about to give up, exhausted, right? And there's a few other words that come into play that's going to kind of encourage this. But again, if you look at the context of James, this makes sense. The people of James are going through poverty, but they're not sure if they're going to be able to eat tomorrow, and that's, that's, that's attacking their faith. They're recipients of injustice from the rich, right? They're out in the sun, toiling away as farmers, and that's attacking their faith. Right? They're being persecuted because they're Christians. People are rejecting them. Right? And, and that makes it all a struggle in their spiritual life. Some of them are dying for their faith. And you see how spiritually it's burdensome. They're tired and some people are at the end of their faith. And so with this translation, okay, I don't know if you agree, but we're going to keep going and maybe I'll convince you by the end. It's like this. Is any among you spiritually weak? Well, you should call your elders of the church and let them pray over you, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is spiritually weary, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sin, he will be forgiven. It's a totally different meaning, right? Now, if someone is physically sick, why do they specifically need to call the elders? I mean, it's a nice gesture to let your leaders know that you're sick, but you can pray for yourself, right? You can ask your friends to pray. You can ask anyone to pray. Why specifically elders? Elders are not healers. That's not why they're put into that position. Elders don't have any more powerful prayers than the rest of us. It's not like when, when the pastors pray. I don't know what it's like. You, know, you make the pastors pray for the food. It's like the food's going to taste better or something. Like, we can all pray. My prayers are not more powerful than yours. You see, the power in prayer does not come from the person who prays, but the person we're praying to. Right? That's the power in prayer. 
As long as I pray in faith, as long as you're praying in faith, in trust in God, my prayer is the same as your prayer. It's not powerful because I'm better than you. It's powerful because God is hears us. That's the power in prayer. So why does the sick need to call the elders? Right? But you know what makes sense? When the spiritually weak, weary, struggling Christian, right, when a person finds themselves there, that they would call the elders. That makes complete sense. You see, here's the progression. James has said, are you cheerful? You should praise. Right? Are you suffering? You should pray yourself. But if you're for worse than that, and you're right at the end of your faith, and you're about to like, just give up, you should call someone for help. And you should call your elders. And this makes sense for two reasons. Number one, because the elders can be what you cannot be. Right? The elders can be what the struggling Christian cannot be. When we appoint elders, if you look at the biblical qualifications of what, what makes you choose an elder and make them an elder, it's not because they're healers or anything like that. It's because they're mature, they're spiritually strong, they've been steady in their faith, they're grounded in the scriptures, they have wisdom, they can teach. It's those characteristics. And those are the things that the spiritually struggling person is not. In that moment, they're not strong, they're weak. They're not steady, they're wavering. Right? They're not f- feeling mature, right? they, they, they're doubting their faith. And they're not like enduring, they're about to give up. And so they need someone who's the complete opposite of them. They call the elders who can be what they cannot be. Does that make sense? Right, okay, one person nodded. Okay, secondly, because the elders can do what they cannot do. I said the power in prayer comes not from the person praying, it comes from the God we pray to. And so the sick, they can pray to the powerful God, right? And in fact, when we're sick, we probably pray some of the most faith-filled prayers we can pray desperately to God. But you know who cannot pray? The spiritually struggling cannot pray in faith. By nature of the position that they're in, doubting, confused, uncertain, they can't pray in faith. They're not even sure in that moment if they believe in God. They're about to give up on their faith. They cannot pray the prayer of faith. And this matters because James said in chapter 1, what do, you, what do you say? He says, when we pray, you should ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. James has said that. When you pray, you need to pray without doubt. Pray in faith. That person can't pray in faith. And so what they need is someone who can. And out of all the people that they might reach out to, right, whatever's going on in your life, the person I might count on to be full of faith, no matter what's going on in their life, is the elder. So we call them, that they may come, that we might speak, I might find counsel and wisdom, and that they might then pray for me. Those at the end of the faith, they need prayer, but they cannot pray themselves, so they call out to the one who can. Pastor John MacArthur, he tells a story where he was at his college, um, I think it's the master's college, and he had his door open, and a student walked in, and the student said, I need prayer. I'm struggling. I'm struggling with my faith. So John MacArthur, he got two chairs, and he put them aside next to each other, and he said, would you kneel with me? And he knelt and kind of leant on the chair. Like, I think his elbows were leaning on the chair. He's like, let's kneel together and let's pray. 
John McCarthy gets down and he's kneeling on the chair. And the student kneels down, but instead of kneeling on the chair, he turns around and he kneels with his arms on John MacArthur, like kind of leaning on him, right? And he, he, he tells a story. He's like, he's like shocked for a moment, like, well, what's going on? But in hindsight, he was like, that, that was the perfect symbol of what was happening. You see, he was a Christian who needed prayer and could not pray themselves. And so they're leaning on the back of a stronger, more mature Christian. It's like, carry me and pray the prayer that I need to pray, but I cannot pray myself. And that's the image of what is happening. When people cannot pray themselves and they're doubting, they call out to those who can pray on their behalf, those who can pray in faith to a powerful God. I don't know if this is convincing you. I don't know, it makes sense to me. Now we're going to the topic of oil. Now the topic of oil is like its own topic of debate, and I just don't have time to go through it. There's four main interpretations of what this means. But if you believe this passage is about the physically sick, well, you've got to make sense. It's got to kind of make sense together with the oil. And if you believe this is physically sick, I think you should go to hospitals with oil, right, if that's what the passage is saying. But let me say this. In the ancient world, uh, oil was widely regarded as um, good for skin conditioning, like kind of moisturizer, or also medicinally, right? If you've got a wound, you've got a cut, or uh, you're hurt. Uh, it's spoken of as curing things from toothaches all the way to paralysis, right? It's like this broad range of stuff. It's like, I don't know, when I was growing up, aloe vera. I feel like aloe vera was the answer to everything. It's like you eat it, you boil it, put it on your face, you know, you got burnt aloe vera, you got cut aloe vera. Uh, like my parents were growing aloe vera at some point in time. Like it's the thing, right? And I feel like oil is kind of like that, broad range of use. Now, um, there's two, okay, I won't talk about that. In the, in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, in the Old Testament in Greek, right, the Greek translation of the Old, Te- uh, of the Old Testament, this word, um, oil, alepho, is used 13 times, and out of the 13 times it's used on a person, uh, nine of them, nine of the 13, when it's used on a person, is for this purpose. It's like medicinal or skin conditioning or hygienic reasons. There's another word, creo, which is more the holy word for oil. That's when you consecrate something or set something apart for God. If you're going to set a person apart for healing, you'd probably think they'd use that word. But it's not that word. It's this kind of everyday word, alepho, just normal oil that you might put on yourself. And we see this word oil, the same word in the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, he finds this person who's hurt, and it says he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on alepho and wine. And that purpose is, again, it's to kind of help his wounds. And so what I believe James is saying is this. He's saying, don't just pray, but just help, but help the needs of the person that they're going through, right? Okay, I got it here. Do you remember the KFC analogy um, where, you know, if someone's hungry and you got food and they come before you and you're like, look, I'll pray for you. God, feed that person, bless you. And you start eating your food. And James is like, what in the world? You don't just pray for someone. If you can, you should help their practical physical needs. And think this is what James is saying. James is saying the elders are going to come to you and they're going to pray for your spiritual needs, but also, if they can, they're going to help your physical, practical needs. Now, in context, again, the people that James is speaking to, they're struggling with poverty, working long hours in the sun as farmers, so their skin is parched and dry. 
Some of these people are being physically persecuted, and so they got wounds on their body. And so the pastors are going to, the elders are going to come, not just to pray for you, but if they can, to help you in your physical need, right? It's applying what James has said before. Now, if you call me out, I'm probably not going to come with a bottle of olive oil and massage your face. You know, in our context, it probably means that I'll take you out for a meal. Maybe if you're struggling with finances, I'll see if there's a way that we can help you out with groceries or something like that. Um, if you are struggling in your faith because you lack community, maybe I'll try to connect you with someone. But it's, it's saying more than prayer. Don't just pray, right? Spiritually administered to them, but also practically, physically administered to their needs, right? That's my understanding. In the end, here's the outcome. And verse 15 is a promise. And the promise is that this prayer of faith from the elders will save the one who is spiritually weary or sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sin, he will be forgiven. Now, if this passage is about sickness, the promise is when the elder prays for you, you will be healed, that's saved, and you'll be raised up. And somehow, your sins will be forgiven. Now, no one on this side of heaven can promise physical healing with that much certainty. You cannot. And some people do. Some people have the tenacity to say, if you come to me, I will heal you. And a lot of people are left disappointed and confused in the faith. We will all be healed in the new heavens and new earth. That is promised. But on this earth, we cannot promise that with that much certainty. God may, but he may not. What James is giving here is a promise. Now let me tell you what we can promise. What we can promise is that if you are a Christian, no matter how deep your struggles are, no matter how... To, to the end of your faith you get to, if you are a Christian, you will be restored on this side of heaven. Your faith will be rejuvenated and you will end as a Christian. We can promise that because that's what the Bible promises. You will be saved. Now that word saved here, I won't say the Greek word, but the word saved here means restoration, deliverance. Now that can mean physical but the main way it's used in the Bible is spiritual. Spiritual restoration, spiritual deliverance. When we say, I'm saved, that's what we're talking about. And so what James is saying is, you will be restored. Your spiritual weary state will be restored, and we can promise that. Because if you're a Christian, you will persevere until the end. God will never lose any of his children or his sheep. And so in your struggle, you cry out because you don't want to lose your faith. You call out to your elders. They will come and they will speak with you, counsel you, pray for you, and administer to your physical needs if they can. And the promise is God will answer that prayer. And it may not be in that moment. It may be a little bit later. It may be a few weeks or months later, but God will answer that prayer. And we are certain of it. You will end as a Christian if you are a Christian. Perseverance of the saints. We can promise that. And so, what I've said is that this is talking about spiritually weak, weary, struggling Christians. And if you're struggling, you call the elders and they will come and they will pray for you. And they will minister to your physical needs if they can. And the outcome is God will hear that prayer of faith. And you will be rejuvenated and restored in his timing. Now, if that's what it means, what does that mean for us? Now, we are a church plant. And so, we don't have 
any elders right now except myself. Right? Technically, I'm a teaching or preaching elder, and we will vote in our first round of official elders at the end of our third year. But for now, we've had an interim council every year, and that's been a kind of yearly term. And so we've had Brother Thomas, who's avoiding my eye contact over there, and we've had Brother Songsu, uh, who's sick at the moment, um, and they're the kind of interim elders, elders, you could say. And I'd also throw in there Peter and Daniel, who are pastors, um, but not yet full-time. Um, these are our leaders. And if you're at the end of yourself, of your faith, and you're struggling, and you're doubting, and you're not sure, and you're confused, and you might give up, I want to ask you to reach out to one of us. We want to know what's going on in your life. We want to be there to speak to you. We, we don't have all the answers. We're not counselors. But what we can do is we can pray for you. We can pray to a powerful God who will hear our prayer. And God will restore you in his time. Now, I want to extend that. If you don't feel comfortable to reaching out to any of the five or so people, reach out to a leader, your growth group leader, ministry leader, or just a mature brother or sister in this place. But what you can't do is just struggle yourself. Now, I want to point out one more thing before I move on to the second point. In verse 14, James puts this responsibility of the struggling Christian meeting with the elder or the leader or the more mature person, he puts that responsibility not on the mature person, but on the struggling person. And he says, are you struggling? You call the elders, right? It's on you to reach out for help. Now, as, as pastors or interim council members, you know, one of the primary roles that we have is to shepherd the church. And so as best as we can, we're going to try to know what's going on in your life. We're going to suss it out. We hear things. We reach out to you. We text you. We call you. Right? We try our best. But we can't know everything. And so if you're struggling, you can't expect pastors to somehow know, somehow hear about it and reach out to you. If, we might miss some of you. And so James is saying, it's on you. And I say that because people have been hurt that I didn't know what was going on in their life when they never told me. And when I hear that, I'm sad. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't know. I wish I knew. And I don't say this to them. But biblically, they should have told me. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't say. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But they should have told me. That's what the Bible says. It's on you. You need to reach out to us. You can't just expect us to be in your life to a degree that we see and know what's going on, that we ask you, how are you? And we, and we try, and we could do a better job, but you need to reach out to us. Here's the first group, those at the end of the faith. Now, these next two are going to be much shorter. Number two, those who are in the faith. James says in verse 16, therefore, and now he's talking to the rest of us, the Christians, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And again, I'll explain that word. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, the word healed, again, has a wide range of uses. When we hear that, we're like, oh, obviously it's physical sick. It can mean spiritual restoration or deliverance, and it does. For example, 1 Peter chapter 2, when it talks about Jesus, he died on the cross, his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Now that word healed does not mean by the wounds of Christ you're physically healed, 
That's not the main point of that word. It means you've been healed spiritually of your sin. You've been forgiven and restored. Okay, so that could mean that. Now, if this thing, again, means physical sickness, it's slightly weird that James would then go from a person who's physically sick and say, look, you're sick, you need prayer from the elders, and somehow, if you've sinned, it's going to be forgiven, right? That connection is a bit loose, and then he'll go to us and say, now, just in case, any one of us are sick because of sin, we all need to be confessing and praying for one another. Now, for me, that feels like a little unusual, because the connection between your sin and your sickness is uncommon. It's not normative. Now, it could be. It could be. Right? For example, there's passages like in Corinthians where if you, you know, take the Lord's Supper in an ungodly manner, people were getting sick. Sin can lead to sickness, but that's not normal. Jesus, when he saw the blind man and his disciples like, who sinned that he's blind? Was it him or his parents? Jesus severs that connection between sin and sickness and say, he's not sick because of sin. That's not how it works. Right? We don't expect that all the time. When you look at Job, he went through intense suffering and even ailments. And his friends around him were saying, you sinned, you sinned. That's why it's happening. But that was not true. Sin and sickness, that connection is not strong. Right? When you see someone sick, you shouldn't be like, sin. Right? That's not what we do. So it's weird that James would say, just in case some of us are sick, we should pray, confess, uh, confess and pray for another. But let me tell you where the connection is strong. Sin and spiritual struggles. Yes, very strong. And so what James is saying, you know, some people are at the end of their faith. They need to get prayer for the elders. But guys, all of us, we need to be confessing sin and praying for one another so we don't get there. That we don't end up there. Because if you leave sin in your life, if you continue in unrepentant sin, you will end there. And so we need to repent of our sin and to help us. But one great antidote to sin and to stop us from getting to a place of struggle is to confess it to one another. Because when I confess it to you and you confess it to me, I'm exposing it. I'm being kept accountable. Now you're going to ask me. You're going to help me, right? And you're praying for me. In that place, it's going to stop us from getting to a place of spiritual struggle. If we can build at Kingsway a culture of confession and intercession, we will stop many people from ending up in a place of spiritual struggle. If we can build a culture of confession and intercession, a lot of people who might have ended up at the end of their faith will not get there. Because if you have hidden addiction or secret sin, or you love the world, or you have wrong priorities, or you idolize things in your life like money or fame, success, and those things are kept in your life, you will end up there. But when we're confessing and we're sharing life, it will be exposed. And you'll repent, and they'll keep you accountable. And what that means for us is that we need to be honest of our sins and be humble enough to reach out to others to share and to ask for prayer. And we need to be both honest and humble. Here's the paradox of perfection for the Christian. The paradox of perfection is this. On the one hand, we want to be perfect as Christ is perfect. That's our goal. We want holiness. Right? That's our yearly that's our theme, right? We want perfection. But when we pretend 
we're perfect in ways we're not. It will actually hinder our growth to become more perfect. The paradox is, when we're honest about our imperfections, it will help us to become more perfect. We need to be honest about our imperfections because there, in that place of honesty and vulnerability, we have accountability, we have exhortation, right? we have repentance. If we're honest about imperfection, it will actually make us more perfect and more like Christ. We will grow faster. And so Kingsway, we need to build a culture of confession and intercession. Now what that means for you, to build that culture, means a hundred different things. For some of us, it means you need to take that next step and you need to commit to a church. You need to belong to a community where you can practice this. Now, it doesn't have to be Kingsway. It has to be somewhere. Hopefully, a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. Christians, if you're a Christian, we don't attend church. We belong to one. And so, belong to one. And if you don't belong to one, that has to be temporary. Or else that's ungodly. If you don't belong to a church, that's okay as long as it's temporary. You need to belong to one. That's what Christ longs for you. Or maybe for some of us, the next step is to put yourself out there and build deeper relationships. It might mean that after service finishes, you don't run off. You stick around and I know this is scary. I'm scared of after service too. You know, I'm a mad introvert. You're like, just pick one. Just be like, I'm going to talk to one person and say, hey, how was your week? That's it. That's it. You don't have to do anything else. Just stick around a bit. Attend the next event. Ask someone out, you know, hey, what are you doing? You guys want to go for lunch? No? Okay, I'm just going to go home now. <laughs> I'll try again next week. If you've got no one to find lunch with, by the way, you know, in the, in the weeks that I don't have like, like a course or something going on, I want to meet people, okay? So, so please, meet me, because <laughs> everyone's rejecting me. I want to go out to lunch, you know, we'll figure out a time. Maybe it means joining a growth group, right? But take that next step so you can be comfortable in community, so you can build the culture of confession and intercession. Maybe some of us, you're already plugged in, and you just need to be vulnerable. You need to be honest to the people, not everything to everyone, but in wisdom, some things to some people, be more honest to your growth groups, to your faith family, in church, to your Christian friends. But if you don't share your struggles and sins, people won't know what to pray for. And sometimes I feel like our prayers are shallow because our sharing is shallow. It's like, what can I pray for? Uh, just, you know, just love Jesus. I'm like, okay, I'll pray you love Jesus. But that's it. Our sharing is shallow. Our praying is shallow. If our sharing is deep and heartfelt, our praying will be deep and it will be heartfelt intercession. So let's build that culture in the faith. So the first group was at the end of the faith. The second, who are in the faith. And third, there are those who have left the faith. James has spoken about every Christian except one, right? He's talking about the cheerful. He's talked about the suffering. He's talked about those in the faith. He's talked about those who are at the end of the faith, but then he has not talked about one. The one who should be here, but is not. The one who has left. Now I use that term Christian loosely because that's not how James is going to talk about these people. Verse 19 to 20, James says, My brothers, if any of you among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Right? James is talking about the people who used to be here but now have gone. I want to say this for the last time. If James, if the, if the verse 14 to 15 was about physical sickness and healing, 
These verses are like, what, how did you get from there to here? What does sickness have to do with people leaving the church? Right? It's hard, right? But if this is spiritual weariness, yeah, easy, right? Are you in the faith? Let's pray and confess for one another so you don't end up at the end of your faith where you're hanging off a string. But unfortunately, some people go beyond that. They leave the faith. Wow. Yes. Makes sense. No, yeah? Okay. No, okay. <laughs> okay. I'm talking to myself. Okay. I want to point out a few things. Number one, James says this. Don't give up on them. Don't give up on them. Our first priority is to the Christians in the church. I just want to make that clear. Our pastor's first priority is to feed the sheep, right? That's number one, right? And we still love the people who aren't here, but number one. And as a believer, you love your believers above everyone else. That's what the Bible says. But it doesn't mean we give up on people who have left the faith, who aren't in the faith. We still love them. And James here isn't content to just talk about people in the church or people who are right at the end of the church. He extends it beyond the walls of the church to the people who have left, who used to be here and who are gone. And he says, don't give up on them. Go and bring them back as they wander from the truth. Now, if I'm honest, this is hard. Like as a pastor... Sometimes, like, people are in the church and they're struggling, and, you know, I meet with them, and I hear them, and they're complaining, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and, you know, I apologize, and I don't agree with half of the stuff they're saying, I don't, I don't say that, mm, okay, and, and then I try my best to serve them, and after all that energy and time, they leave the church. And at that point, if I'm honest, as a part of me, and this is me confessing, culture of confession, please pray for me, intercede for me. I'm honest, if when they get to that point and they leave the church, what well, I'm like, all right, that's on you. You made that choice. You left the church. But that's not what James says. He says, don't give up on them. The temptation is when they come and they say, I'm done with church, for us to think, well, the church is done with you. Right? But James says, no, we don't give up even still. And some of these people who are used to be with us and have left, they're some of the hardest people to reach out to because they think they know. They think they know the Bible. They know the gospel. They know what we're going to say. But still, James says, don't give up. The second thing is that we treat them as non-believers. At a certain point, depending on the way that they talk or the way that they live, we will begin to see them as non-believers. Now, the language James uses here is important. He talks about them wandering from the truth. That means they've left the gospel and the Bible. James calls them a sinner. That's a term only used in the Bible for non-believers. And he says, if you bring them back, you will save their soul from death. And so the assumption is that they're headed toward death. They're not Christian. And what this means is that even though our care for these people don't change, at a certain point, something does change. And what changes is the way that we might see them, the way that we might look at them. And we will see them no longer as believers. And that's hard. Because some of the people who used to be with us were with us for a long time. Some of the people who used to be with us were very involved. Maybe they got baptized and they stood up on stage and they shared their testimony. Some of them were leaders, and they led things. And at the end of the day, only God knows the state of their salvation. But if their words and lifestyle 
continue to contradict that of the Bible and the gospel, at a certain point, we will see, pray, and treat them as non-believers. That's what James is saying. Now, do believers become non-believers? No. What James is saying is they were never believers to begin with. And this is important. I'm not saying this so that we'll judge people and say, you're not a non-believer. But if we, if we make that shift, we will treat them differently and we should. Because the way that you pray for and speak to a non-believer who's left the church is different from a believer who's left the church. If a Christian leaves the church, just go out to them and be like, are you a Christian? Go to church. What are you doing? The Bible says, Jesus says, God says. And you exhort them, you rebuke them, and you tell them. But if they're not a believer, we shouldn't demand from them to live like a Christian if they're not a Christian. They don't care what the Bible says. They don't care what God says. Right? If they're sinning and, and, and like they're getting drunk and doing drugs and you know, sleeping around, if they're not a Christian, we shouldn't say anything about that. Right? You've heard me say, they don't need to change their behavior. They need to change their savior. And so we don't go to them to try to change their behavior if they're not a Christian. We need to pray that they will come to know Jesus, and we need to tell them about the gospel. Right? But their lifestyle makes sense because they don't believe in Christ. Right? So that's better for them when we get shift that perspective. The third thing James says is this. We should pray, but not only pray, we should pursue them. Now, I don't know if you noticed, I kind of... I kind of tricked you. James doesn't actually say we should pray for them. He never says that. Now, in a segment all about prayer, you would think James would say we should pray for the guys who've left the church. I mean, if anyone needs prayer, kind of, it's them, right? They've left the church. He doesn't say that. James has actually said the word pray in every single verse that we've looked at. Verse 13, 14, 15, verse 16, Twice, 17, 18. Every single verse, he says pray, but not this one. And I think the reason why is because it's assumed, but also because James wants to say, again, don't just pray. Don't just pray that someone comes back to church. No, pursue them. What can you practically do to make it happen? Christians don't just, in the safety of our church, be like, oh, God, it would be so great if so-and-so came back to church miraculously, walked through that door. God, I wait the day that they just walk through that door again. Yes, in Jesus' name, amen. And then we don't even talk to them. James is like, what? What can you do to pursue them? Right? We say con- contact, connect, convert. Go message them and be like, hey, it's been a while. How are you going? Try to connect with them, maybe over a meal, and build that relationship, and then see if you can introduce them to Christ or bring them to church where they'll hear about the gospel. But don't give up on them. Maybe treat them as a non-believer, but also don't just pray for them, pursue them. And if you pursue them and bring them back from their wandering, you will save their soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now as I close, I want to close. I think if you're here today, there's probably two groups of people that you can pray for. The first group is a group I just talked about. Those who've left the faith or those who used to be here but are no longer here. Those you grew up in the church with but you know don't go to church. Maybe they sat right next to you for a season every week but now they're no longer claiming to be Christians or they don't live like one. 
And I want you to pray for them. We're going to pray for them in a moment. That's the first group, those who've left the church, left the faith. Pray for them, but also pray for yourself that you would pursue maybe one of them and do something to reach out to them. But the second group that I want us to pray for is yourself. Now, each of us, we fall under one of three categories here today. We've talked about two. You're in the faith, maybe. You're a Christian. You're going okay. Then I want you to pray for yourself that you would help build this culture of intercession right, and confession. Right? What can you do to take the next step to build that? Because we need that to make sure we don't end up in the second category, which is at the end of your faith. Now, some of us, we're at the end of your faith. Now, I want you to pray for yourself. Pray for your soul and pray that God will help you. But also, again, I want you to reach out to one of the leaders we want you to, and we want to meet with you, speak with you. We want to pray for you. Now, there's a third category of people that James didn't address here. And you're not in the faith at the end of your faith. You haven't left the faith. You were never of the faith. You're not a Christian, and you're here. And if that's you... We're so happy you're here, and thank you for sticking through a Greek-heavy sermon about Christians. But the invitation for you is that, as, again, that you would meet with God. But for you to meet with God, here's the frank truth, you don't deserve to meet with God. James is, you are, as James would call you, you are a sinner, and what you deserve is judgment from God. And when I say that to you, I say that about me, and I say that about all of us. None of us deserve to meet with God. But only by what Christ has done can we have a chance to meet with God. What Christ has done is he died on the cross to cover over your failures and your sins. That if you would believe in him, you will be cleansed. Just like that, freely, a gift of grace you'll be saved, you'll be sozo, you'll be restored, and you'll be delivered. And all the mistakes and the wrongdoings of the past, all of the, the, the rebellion that you've done against God will be gone. And you'll be a Christian. And that's the invitation for you, that you would turn to God and through Christ in faith, be cleansed of your sins and choose to follow Christ. Now, if that's you, I invite you to do that in prayer today. But all of us, pray for those who've left the faith and let's pray for ourselves. All right, let's close our eyes and let's pray. All right, let's pray for those who've left the faith who used to be with us. Let's pray for their salvation. Let's ask God to convict us to do something about it. But also let's pray for ourselves. If you're in the faith, to build a culture of confession and intercession. But if you're at the end of your faith, for courage to not only wrestle through this by yourself but to seek help and counsel from your leaders and if you're not a believer I invite you to believe in Christ and you'll be saved and all of heaven will rejoice and your present past and your eternity will be utterly and completely changed believe in Christ for your salvation all of us let's pray at this time let's pray